Hello, and welcome back to the PCF Bible Talk podcast. My name is Anna, and today I'm here with my coworkers. Hello, I'm Skye. Hi, I'm Kristen. And we are continuing our Bible study on the drama of redemption, and this episode is the first part in our two-part study of John chapter 3. In this episode, we hope to give you some background into the context and setting of Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus, which is what we're going to read in John 3. So to get us started, let's read the first three verses of John 3. So Kristen, can you read that for us? Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's how this account gets started. And when we do part two, we'll read the full account. But for background, we want to talk about three words or phrases from these initial verses. So the first thing we want to talk about, number one, is who were the Pharisees? Number two... What does it mean that Nicodemus was a, quote, ruler of the Jews? And third, what does Jesus mean here when he talks about the kingdom of God? And why is that the first thing that he responds with to Nicodemus, Nicodemus talking with him? All right. So to start with number one, let's start with the idea that Nicodemus is introduced as, quote, a man of the Pharisees. So who are the Pharisees? If you have read much of the Bible or the Gospels, you've probably seen the Pharisees come up in many stories, as they are often talking and even maybe more often arguing with Jesus. And when you read a Bible footnote, often it says that the Pharisees were very religious people or people who were committed to the law of Moses. But then that kind of raises the question, wasn't that supposed to be all of the Jewish people? Wasn't everybody supposed to be committed to the law? Were they different from just being devout? What made the Pharisees distinct within within Judaism? So to answer this question, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I also found a really helpful YouTube video by a professor named Chad Bird, and I'll link to that full video in the podcast description. And if you have time, I recommend you listen to the whole 13 minutes. But it also describes the scribes and how they're different from the Pharisees. But here is one quote from that video about the Pharisees. So, Sky, would you mind reading this quote? The Pharisees were people who had pledged themselves to a life of piety that exceeded that which would have been expected of and required of a common Israelite. So, we often read that the Pharisees wanted to establish a true Israel. It's often described as a sort of democratization of the priestly requirements of those who served at the temple so that the requirements of the priest with regard to dress, the requirements of the priest with regard to the various purity laws, and what they could or couldn't eat, all of those were then assumed as a responsibility also of the Pharisees. So they were the exemplars of piety. They were the ones in their individual lives and in their family lives who tried to replicate the higher levels of purity and sanctity that were required of the priest who served at the temple. Thank you, Sky. So the Pharisees, they weren't just holding onto the law like everyday Israelites, but they were trying to adhere to the strictest standard of the law that was provided for the priests who were actively serving at the temple. And that wasn't normally required that everyone would hold that standard. But the Pharisees basically thought like, well, if 
if that's the most pure way to be, then shouldn't we all try to be that at all times? And so they tried to stick to those rules really closely. Um, and so in society, they were really respected as people who were trying to be so pious and holy. So Kristen and Sky, what do you guys think might have motivated people to become Pharisees or to adopt this way of approaching the law? Well, I think one thing, um, just because you see how like strict they are, how works focused they are, um, I think that could have been a motivation just from the point of view of, okay, I'm trying to, if I do all of these things correct, then I will be in more favor with God. God will look favorably upon me. Um, or if I do all these things, then this is how I live my life. Because it's easier to follow a list of rules and regulations at points than it is just to obey God, live a life that's pleasing to God. Um, so I think that works focused would have been something that could have been motivating to them. Yeah. And I also wonder if it could be that they just wanted to be separated from everyone else around them, from a common people um, by doing all these good works, by doing um, just by holding the law so strictly. Um, maybe they just want to show that they were a cut above other people to show how pious they were as we've been saying. Right. And I feel like that could have come from a good motivation or a bad motivation. It can come from vanity, you know, not wanting to be like other people and wanting to be better. It can also come from a genuine desire to know God and to please him. And you're like, well, God gave us this law, so more must be better. You know, it's like the person who says, well, if studying is good, then 20 hours of studying must be better than 10 hours of studying and 30 hours of studying must be better than 20 and 10, you know? And so they're like, if keeping the law is good, then this excessive keeping of the law must be more pleasing to God. So yeah, I think they could be motivated both by sort of self-righteousness, trying to make themselves right before God, maybe for bad reasons, but also maybe for good reasons out of love for God. Um, and I'm sure it was probably mixed in their own hearts and probably mixed among different people who were Pharisees and and had it to different degrees. But mostly they're negative um, characters in the Gospels because often they're really condemning of Jesus because he doesn't keep their strict purity laws in the way that they keep them. But here it's interesting that Nic Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he comes, it seems, as an honest questioner to Jesus. So again, they're not only negative. It sounds like Nicodemus really is seeking the truth and really is wanting to know about God. All right, so that's point number one. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's keeping the law really strictly and holding himself to a high standard of personal piety. But we also learn from the text that it says he was a ruler of the Jews. So what does that mean? Well, this means that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Now, the Sanhedrin was a council of about 70 Jewish leaders that governed various religious, judicial, and political aspects of life in Israel. So Sanhedrin is the Greek word for council. So it's kind of like the council with a capital C. In the podcast notes, I'll link to an encyclopedia entry about the Sanhedrin because its history is complex and it played different roles through different periods of Jewish history. But as we read through the Gospels, we can see the Sanhedrin, or the council as it's called, at work all through the ministry of Jesus because it was the council's responsibility to judicially determine whether or not someone was a false or true prophet of God. And throughout Jesus' ministry, they are constantly investigating what he is doing 
And ultimately, right before his crucifixion, it's the Sanhedrin that delivers the verdict that he is a blasphemer and a false teacher, and they are the ones to deliver him over to the Roman authorities to execute him. Because although they had some civil authority, they couldn't put someone to death. That had to be the Roman authorities. So the Sanhedrin has quite a bit of power. And let's just look at one passage that demonstrates this from a little later on in the book of John. So in chapter 7 of John, Jesus has just been teaching publicly at the temple, and he's been making a lot of big big claims. He has declared that he is the source of living water and that everyone should believe in him. And so all the people are riled up. Everyone's thinking about what he's saying. And the council, the Sanhedrin, has sent some soldiers to arrest Jesus so that they can basically shut him up. So let's pick up the story in the midst of the people's reaction to Jesus' statements about being living water. So Kristen, can you read from John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay, so this is a pretty tense situation. Um, What do you guys see about the role of the council here and how Nicodemus interacts with them? What strikes you as we read that? Yeah, so I think first, just kind of the role of the council. Um, and how the council sees themselves. So they really see themselves as uniquely qualified to assess the truth of Jesus's statements. So they're saying that they have the kind of authority or the knowledge to decide the truth above that of the common people. And that really stands out where it's the phrase they ask, like, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So really setting like, no, the authorities and the Pharisees, we have not believed in him. It is just you other people. Um, So that just stands out to me, that kind of how they're holding their thoughts and their authority um, as much more qualified than the others. Yeah, and with Nicodemus, it's clear that he's a part of this group, um, but he's also the closest one who um, supports Jesus. Like, he's not going as far as just supporting him, but he is defending him a little bit. Um, And so really within the council, Nicodemus is the closest person Jesus has to an ally. Yeah, so we see when we're going to read John 3, we'll see that the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus ends inconclusively. We don't actually know what Nicodemus thinks about what Jesus says or how he does or doesn't respond to it. But we do see in John 7 that he at least is sort of speaking up for Jesus. Like, do we condemn a man without a trial? Like, let's give him a chance. And so he hadn't openly identified himself as a follower of Jesus, but he was a sympathizer. And just to wrap up that thread, the only other mention we have of Nicodemus in the Bible is from John 19, where it says that Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was another member of the Sanhedrin, to bury Jesus. And it, the text says that Nicodemus provided a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, to help wrap up the body of Jesus for burial, was, as was the custom at the time. So although we don't know, again, what Nicodemus was publicly willing to identify as or where his heart was, he did seem to be sympathetic with Jesus and, and concerned for his death and for his body and identified with him a little bit publicly. Okay, so we have Nicodemus. We understand that he is a Pharisee, that he is a member of this strong ruling council. And so for our last background point, we want to talk a little bit more about the kingdom of God. Because Nicodemus says what in his opening thing in John chapter 3, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And even though he doesn't say anything directly about the kingdom of God, Jesus answers him right away by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So clearly both of them knew that the kingdom of God was at the heart of what Nicodemus was looking for. But they are referring to it as a given, like we all know what we're talking about, right? The kingdom of God. Yeah, the kingdom of God. But but what are they talking about? What is the kingdom of God? Obviously, this is a big question. And in a sense, this is what the whole Bible is about. And this is something that we have been talking about as well in this series, when we have been talking about the roles of prophet, priest, and king. We have said that Israel was looking forward to a new, perfect, and coming king. And a king rules over a kingdom, right? But we want to take the time to look at one more very significant passage of the Old Testament background to the concept of the kingdom of God, a passage that we didn't have time to look at in our other studies. This passage is from the book of Daniel. It's chapter 7. So to give you a little brief context of Daniel, Daniel was written um, in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Daniel was a man, if you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den, so he was living in Babylon And during his time there, he also had visions and dreams that God gave him about what was going to happen in the future. And particularly, he had visions and dreams about kingdoms, powerful earthly kingdoms that were to come, that were represented by different animals. And we can't study that passage, but just when you say the four beasts, it's us talking about four different kingdoms. And these passages are extensive, and again, they are worthy of their own study. But let's just read this section from Daniel 7, verses 13 through 18. So, Sky, can you read that for us? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretations of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Great. Thank you. So we have this vision of one like a son of man coming before God, the Ancient of Days, 
And he is given something that is identified as a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And then when it goes on a little bit more, it says, but the saints of the most high shall also receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. So there's a sense of a son of man ruling over this kingdom and the saints of the most high receiving this kingdom. So this is a prophecy given, you know, in the mid 500s BC. And if you were reading this, guys, what just sort of what initial questions would you have about this prophecy and sort of what questions does this raise about a kingdom? Yeah, well, first of all, it makes me wonder, like, what would this kingdom look like? Yeah, and I think following right after that, like, when is the kingdom going to come? It says it's forever and ever and ever. Um, but when? When are we going to see this kingdom? Yeah, and also it says that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. And so it makes me wonder, who are the saints going to be? Yeah, and how are they going to receive the kingdom? What does that look like? And what is this kingdom like? if it is everlasting, is it an earthly kingdom? Like the four animals that he said had gone before or was something different about it? So these are the kind of questions that the people of Israel would have had when they received this prophecy from Daniel. Um, There would have been a lot of hope in this statement that this kingdom was coming and would be established forever by God, but also the details and the fleshing out and the timeline, they wouldn't know. And so people just had those questions on their minds and hearts for centuries And it was an active thing, like, when is the kingdom of God coming? And so when in the Gospel of Mark, it begins Jesus' ministry by saying, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That would be such a big deal for the people of Israel. They would say, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, this, the kingdom of Daniel 7 or or something else. What do you mean? What is this kingdom life? So that is the question that Nicodemus also came with. And Jesus knew that and immediately meets him on those terms. And I'll just make a small sidebar to say later in John 3, Jesus also uses the title son of man to refer to himself. And that is also from Daniel 7. It's Jesus's favorite title for himself. And he's referencing this passage, which is actually a very grand claim. Sometimes people think son of man is a very humble thing. But actually, if he's identifying himself as this son of man who receives an eternal kingdom, that's a pretty big claim. So we don't have time to go into that, but I will link to two five-minute videos in the podcast description that do a great job of explaining that title, Son of Man, because it's just really rich and significant. So I encourage you, if you have time, to watch those. All right. So that brings us to the end of part one. That is our background as before we dive more into the actual text of John 3. So thank you so much for listening. We hope that you will tune in for part two, where we read the full conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.